エルビス・プレスリーキング俺はやっぱりカール・パーキンスエルビスカール・パーキンスエルビスカール・パーキンスエルビスカール・パーキンスエルビスアフリカンアメリカンズ。He came from Tupelo, which is a staggeringly racist area in Mississippi. Came to Memphis, ended up in East Memphis when he was beginning to be well known, and ultimately ended up in Whitehaven, which was an area that was created in northern Mississippi and
hence the term White Haven. So Elvis was an anomaly in a sense, a very, very, very special guy. White Haven, wow. <laughs> now I get it. One of the interesting aspects is the power of the music and how much of an impression it's made on us and did in all honesty back then but it was a very convoluted evolutionary process in the caucasian community in the mid 50s blues obviously was a expression of pain and repression very very painful existence and gospel outside of blues was really the only safe haven of expression for african americans in the south particularly in Mississippi, and I remember this quite well, they were not allowed to express themselves as to who they were and how they felt on the street, so to speak. What they were allowed to do was to worship a sort of a Caucasian god, so to speak, somebody created in a white man's image, and do it inside a church. And if they did that, then that was fine. But if they got outside the church and expressed themselves, there was a lot of recrimination. It was very, very challenging and very difficult for them. And so their expressions of gospel music were transcendent, powerful things that led to some of the great singers in gospel and rhythm and blues coming out of the churches in the South. And you know a number of them. You studied the subject uh, quite a lot. You played that music, Aretha Franklin and a lot of those people. David Porter from uh, Stax Records has that same feeling about it. The expression of gospel ended up as the rhythm and blues music that we know and love now. Th those kinds of repressions were staggeringly uncomfortable for the African Americans, and it kept those of us who were born in the 40s and grew up in the 50s from really experiencing those types of music until... Uh, Elvis began to express it. And if you remember, he was also a major gospel fan. Major, major gospel. Yeah. Uh, he used to turn on the radio and listen to Sister Rosetta Tharp AM radio shows when he was a youngster. And uh, she was she was a rock star in her own sense. Uh, Come out of the gospel, but ended up touring around and playing with big bands. Calvin Newborn, my understanding is... Elvis uh, used to go down and try and catch his show. So more about the gospel. What was your sense of gospel when you were growing up in Memphis in that, that mm -hmm. time? Is that something that you were curious about, or would whites just not be uh, involved in the gospel music? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it was, it was probably a kid. because when, when you say the word whites, you know, you're not white, neither am I. Johnny Winter was, okay. but you and I are pink, and okay. that's basically the deal. We're pink. <laughs> One of the things that I, I thought a long time ago that African Americans were initially called black because that was, in a sense, an, a, an insult to them. They actually took it upon themselves as a way to express their uniqueness and and the I'm black and I'm proud thing became a major feeling for them and an expression of their identity and, and their worth. But I always chuckle when I hear that because I mm. see the white person as being pure from the church standpoint yeah, yeah. and the black person being darkness and evil from the church's standpoint. But I, I'm, I'm past that now. Yeah, <laughs> I write pink in. Oh, that's Where great. it says sex, I say uh, yes. Yeah. It's one of those things with... 
Why don't we play a couple tunes and we'll we'll start digging in a little deeper if you want. You bet. Oh, Elvis's influences. We have Sister Rosetta Tharp, and then we'll get into uh, maybe one or two more. We'll have a discussion about that. We're listening to Road Tune Session. DJ Philo Beto here on our new time at 6 o'clock. And I'm here with Archie McLaren, The Experience of the Blues. Sister Rosetta Tharp, a gospel and rock and roll influence. Calvin Newborn here with Newborn Blues, one of Elvis's favorite.
So that's Calvin Newborn. Elvis Presley used to get in over to Beale Street and watch him play. In fact, I think I have a clip of Calvin Newborn uh, talking about Elvis. And we're back here with uh, Archie McLaren, and we wanted to, to, before we took off too far into the Elvis's influence, we wanted to talk a little more about the gospel influences. What's up with that, Archie, when you were growing up in Memphis? I don't know that everybody had the same experience I did. I, my family was in the Episcopal Church, and I had a lot of friends who were in the Catholic Church and so forth and so on. But gospel wasn't discussed back then. Uh, choirs were. Uh, it wasn't called gospel singing in the Caucasian churches, in the, quote, white churches. On the other hand, virtually no one that I was aware of at the time, either my parents' age or my age, went to the African-American churches to hear gospel music. And so it was something of which we were extremely unaware. That was uh, one of the aspects of it. The other interesting aspect of it was that nor were we aware of the blues. And I'm talking about a time when we were roughly 14 years old or so. That would be like 1956, 1955, 1956. And somehow, the blues began to sift into the Caucasian community through radio stations, WDIA and WLOK. These were stations that played blues and they played gospel. And somehow or another, uh, the word got around that that music was being played and that it was really interesting, powerful, compelling music. And I remember... uh, sort of seeking out the impression that my parents would have about that subject and found out that they didn't want me listening to either radio station at all. My family was not alone in their racism. That was pandemic in the area back then. I mean, at at that particular time, there was essentially in the Memphis government on any level whatsoever, not a single African-American. There were two times as many Uh, white voters as there were black voters. I mean, nothing was going to happen for them at that time that was particularly beneficial. And so what I did is I would take the radio, pull it under the covers, cover the radio and my head with everything I could get over it and me, and turn on WDIA and WLOK, and I would listen to these powerful, powerful songs. I wasn't as an aficionado of it. I mean, I I knew nothing about it up until that point, and I wasn't really thrilled with gospel music. I wasn't thrilled with uh, any kind of organized religion, in all honesty, even as a relatively young person in in international acolyte guilds and things like that. you know, Eagle Scout and all that stuff. I just never really got into it emotionally. But the blues grabbed me like nothing has ever grabbed me. And the interesting aspect of it was that what led into to turning the radio on to those stations to, to listen to them was at a very young age, around that time, maybe I was 14 or 15 years old, I was at a local area swimming pool. It was a public swimming pool area. And there was a rectangular room in there where they allowed musicians to come in or invited musicians to come in or whatever. Not sure how this all was all set up. 
and they would play, and if you happened to be around, you would hear them. Well, the night that I was in there, uh, there were a number of us young people, and I looked to my left, and I saw two people who looked uh, suspiciously out of place at that particular point, African-American man and African-American woman. He was in a rumple suit, brogans, uh, rumpled hat. He looked uncomfortable, truly uncomfortable, physically, emotionally, every other way you can express it. His wife was in a plantation dress, which was kind of odd because normally you didn't see that in places uh, other than in plantation areas like Mississippi and uh, Arkansas, West Memphis, places where cotton was grown and there was you know, still that oppressive slavery kind of thing going on, even though it wasn't supposed to be. And so uh, I was fascinated, and I watched them walk up on stage. They were kind of bowed over a little bit because they didn't look like they really wanted to be there. There were two chairs on stage. He sat down in one of them. She sat down in the other. She had her knees together, hands across across her knees, looking very prim, and uh, he had a guitar case, and he had a harp container with him. And he had, and he, so he pulled out the harmonica and pulled out the, the uh, guitar, plugged him into a funky amplifier, and then pulled out a pint of Four Roses bourbon and unscrewed it. And she looked at him like, oh, my God, what am I going to deal with tonight? She wasn't happy about that at all because, come to find out later, he did have a major, major drinking problem as part of his history. He took a couple of of hits on Bobo and then set it down by his feet, and he started strumming the guitar, playing the harmonica, and singing. And what was fascinating about it for me was the power of it and the emotional expression of it. The first song I heard was Baby, You Don't Have to Go. And that was one of his songs that continued with him on his greatest hits albums and so forth and so on. Interestingly and ironically, that week, my first love had let me go. And so that song had a profound effect on me as a young man. But nonetheless, it was Jimmy Reed. And as the night wore on, Jimmy Reed. Yeah, I never left the stage. I mean, I stayed. I sat and stood. I mean, in front of the stage, staring at him and listening to him, and never walked away. From time to time, as the night transpired, his wife would lean over and whisper something to him. You could hear it sometimes through the mic, because at that particular point, he was altered by the Four Roses and. She was whispering lyrics to him. It was a fascinating evening, and that's basically what led me into seeking out uh, the blues on the radio stations and doing whatever I could to make it happen. Sure, go for it. All right, we're listening to Jimmy Reed next. You're on the Road Tune Sessions with uh, Archie McLaren.
Junior Wells, Mystery Train. And then we had uh, Elvis Presley, his version before that. And Archie asked me to plug that in. So let's talk about, you know, that Mystery Train? I've heard James Brown's Night Train, and there's a couple of lyrics in there he throws in. It's it definitely influenced by that uh, song, that soul uh, classic. I like both versions. Uh, Junior Wells, is, of course, is really powerful. The saxophone has a lot to do with that, but his voice also is more out of the blues genre than Elvis's obviously isn't but both of them have an incredible power to them fascinating to me that Elvis as a person who had a voice like an angel could express himself emotionally so thoroughly and so profoundly and I think it it crossed all kinds of racial lines and helped bring African-American music to people who wouldn't otherwise have been all that interested in listening to it. What did Dewey Phillips, do you know much about him? He, you said he was a, quite a character, but he, he was actually uh, showed Elvis Beale Street a bit, didn't he? Yeah. They, as I mentioned earlier, he, he and Elvis would go down there together and go to the clubs. <clears throat> it was kind of fascinating to me, too, that when I heard about that, it had something to do with the way I approached the latter part of my prep school career, uh, there are probably people out there in Memphis right now who are friends of mine listening to this tonight because some of them are aware of, of the fact that you and I are having this program, and obviously streaming's a good thing these days. What I decided to do after I got into the blues was to see if I could actually go to some of the things uh, face-to-face, person-to-person, actually be there. Of course, I was an underage Caucasian kid, And that was a challenge, trying to find where that was going to happen. And the African-American blues players were not playing in clubs where we were necessarily our parents, let's say, were not comfortable with having us there. I never would have expressed the fact to my parents that I even wanted to go to one of those clubs. And Elvis was so popular, there's no way you were going to see him. Uh, You know, he couldn't walk down the street without being swamped. He had to rent movie theaters to take his friends out late at night uh, to even get away from the crowds. And so that wasn't a possibility. We weren't going to hear Mystery Train in person with him. And when I was in prep school, I was the president of the Honor Council, and so I got placed with prep school females on a continuing basis to go to debutante parties. And I was... I won't say obnoxious about it, but I wasn't as embracing about it as they would have liked for it to be. And ultimately, they stopped putting me with these partners to go to debutante parties. Let's say I didn't have the social skills. I had them, but I just didn't show them. And so what I would do is I would go to the debutante party because I had to. I'd have my other clothes other than the suit or whatever uh, under the seat of the car. I'd go to what they call filling stations back then. I'd change the clothes, and I would go to the blues club, and they would let me in. I'd be the only Caucasian in the blues clubs, and they embraced me like I was a person who grew up in the neighborhood, or maybe even better, because they were so stunned 
that somebody who was like 17 years old or 18 years old would dare go into an African-American part of town and and go up to the door and go in. Not once was I denied, you know, the ability to go in and go listen. And so that was one of the ways that I became even more profoundly interested in the subject, which in many ways uh, ultimately led me into becoming involved with the civil rights movement and a lot of other things because I saw how wonderful, kind, embracing, fabulous these people who had not been given respect, not been given educations, not been given jobs, etc., and had it blamed on them were, how kind and how wonderful they were. And uh, you probably got a lot of flack for that? I never, no, I never told anybody. I didn't tell my own classmates. They don't have a clue. If they're listening right now, probably some of them are, or do, or would have a clue. Is that where you've been going? <laughs> That's where I was. Yeah. Go through the reception line, shake hands, go out the back door, go to a blues club. Marvelous. This is Memphis. In yeah, 1959. 59. 60, okay. yeah. All right. Well, we have a lot of other music, and I know we won't get to all of it approaching the top of the hour. So more than another hour of this great stuff, so we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, DJ Filobetto here with the Road Tune Sessions, and we're here with Archie McLaren. And we're digging into the blues and Memphis, the South, and the 50s, and some of the influences here from Archie and uh, some of the other artists. So what other artists we can talk about? You know, we uh, we got that mystery train, and I know at one point we talked about Interestingly, how the Brits, the UK, kind of caught on to the blues, you know, in the 60s, much quicker than the U.S. Butterfield Blues Band and Cream and Stones and things like that. And we may be jumping a decade really fast here, but I just wanted to throw that in and get your impression about why you think maybe the Europeans took on and embraced and really kept alive a lot of these blues artists financially by, by playing their music, and though not many of them probably got royalties and well, it is a fascinating subject, and we can go on with it for a while, and I do have some thoughts on it. But one of the things that popped into my mind, speaking of roughly 1960, was a concert at the National Guard Armory in Memphis, mm-hmm. uh, a Bo Diddley concert. Uh-huh. Do you have Bo lurking about I here? do, actually. You know, I remember seeing Bo Diddley right here in IV uh, and uh, John Lee Hooker, for that matter, and they came to town guess it was the mid-90s, so we got to have uh, I'm a Man and then the Bo Diddley song. And, um, you know, he was a chess uh, a chess records recorder for for the most part. Uh, I think later on in life he had picked up by some other bands. But tell me about that story about Bo Diddley playing one, oh, yeah, one yeah. string at a time. This, as I mentioned, was uh, 1960, and he was playing at the National Guard Armory in Memphis. And the guy who booked him, was a fellow who was a uh, ended up being a schoolmate of mine at, at Vanderbilt, but this is, of course, we were seniors. And uh, Bo came out onto the stage by himself, and he had his guitar with him, and it didn't have a single string in it. I didn't know, obviously, at the time, nor did anybody. I just found out relatively recently that a diddly bow is an actual musical instrument from Africa that's a, a bent wood sort of stick-like thing that has one string on it, which I assume he knew about, flipped it around, and created his name out of it. Nonetheless, he comes on the stage with a guitar and no strings, and he puts one string in it, and then he plays the string. And he plays it rather 
extraordinarily. I mean, it wasn't quite Hendrix, but you know, it was it was something that you would see some kind of association with at some point. Then he put the second string in, and he played the two. The third string played the three. And he, when he had the entire guitar filled with strings, he went into Bo Diddley, Bye Baby, Diamond Ring, and went right through that song. That diamond ring don't shine, you know. You probably got that one in here somewhere. Let's put it on. Come to my house with that cat bone. Take my baby all the way from home. Mother, that photo, where's he been? Diddley by Bo Diddley on the chess box label. So that's a great story, and you want to add, well, add to I've, that? Well, I, I ran into him uh, about 30 years ago in California, maybe 25. I'm not very linear. The 60s took care of that. Uh, and I asked him about that night, and he remembered it. He remembered playing that night. It was a fun remembrance for him because he had a glint in his eye when he when he responded to it. But the thing that was was really powerful back then, that pain and repression situation that was going on into the late 60s, really came forward to me very clearly. You're familiar with David Porter, I'm sure. He and Isaac Hayes were at Stax Records at one one point. And 
interestingly, he called yesterday, and uh, I asked him about some things, but I told him we were going to be doing the show tonight. And I asked him his feelings about that point in time in the late 60s and, and what was going on in the black culture and with black music and so forth, blues and rhythm and blues, and there was a transitional period he he said to me, some of these things are, are essentially quotes from him. Uh, he said, the power of music was a rallying cry, a celebration of feeling good about life, when obviously there were things about life that weren't feeling good at that point, if you were an African-American, an expression of pride as a black person. He said that it was catastrophic emotionally back then. But it's easy to be analytical about it now because, you know, you can look back on it and you see these, this part of the evolutionary process. But he indicated that music was the connectivity and, quote, uplifting a people who were being suppressed. It was a motivational, connectable means for African Americans that music had a universal power, a spiritual connection that came from the church through gospel. Now, that... That's quite a statement, and obviously it goes back to some things we talked about earlier about what I saw in Mississippi. When I <clears throat> was down there, I was uh, the only Caucasian teacher in a Title I school, um, invited by Mississippi State to come down and coach their tennis team because I'd been a state champion tennis player, and I'd coached a state championship team in, in Memphis. It was a all-Caucasian boys' school where I'd been to prep school. And when I went down there, uh, there wasn't a job at the, quote, white school, and they put me in the uh, multicultural school, so to speak, and I was the only Caucasian teacher there. And there were a lot of, of challenging aspects of it. I remember the first time I was down there, they sent me to the Caucasian school's uh, teachers' meeting, and they, one of the women teachers came up and told me, they were watching everything I did, and if I did anything out of line, I would pay for it. So I never went back to one of those teachers' meetings. I bonded with all of the wonderful people who were at Hunt High School, which was the other school, multicultural school, and ended up playing on the basketball team with the faculty. One of the greatest experiences I ever had was being in the gymnasium, looking around, and I was the only Caucasian in the gymnasium, the only one. And I fortunately hit the shot, the first shot that I took, so I felt like I was, you know, given some kind of reprieve from whoever or whatever from being on the basketball court with all these wonderful athletes. But at any rate, those kinds, those kinds of things uh, were very powerful. The school, uh, uh, Mississippi State University, was extremely racist. And I won't even say some of the quotes that I heard about African-American athletes by some of the coaches who were at Mississippi State. That makes me angry, and it makes me even feel like crying sometimes. I just don't want to even get into it. But at a certain point, uh, I fell in love with a woman uh, in Columbus, Mississippi, who was Choctaw Indian and African-American. And one of my tennis players told the director of athletics, he told the board at Mississippi State, uh, they gave me 48 hours to get out of Mississippi alive, basically run by the the Klan, the board at the Mississippi State was. 
So I called my buddies at the FBI, and I'd been at the FBI when I was in law school, you know, several years earlier. I played on the basketball team with the, with the agents, and I told them what was taking place, and they came down to Mississippi and, and got me out. But this is the kind of thing that was taking place back there. During that time, and Mississippi State was only 50 miles from Tupelo, where the Caucasian, well, actually it was an African-American, Caucasian, and Jewish kid who was shot by the police and buried in a dam. So back then... Wasn't that uh, part of that film, Mississippi Mississippi Burning? Yeah, that's Um, part of it. Yeah. They, They changed it in order to make it more powerful or something for the people. Right. I don't know how it could be much more powerful. I'm just making a reference. For, yeah. for people who went to see it. And so what I'm saying is that during that time, this is when David Porter and Isaac Hayes and all these people said, you know, we've got to express who we are. 